What do you hear most right now? The echo of footsteps in the hallway? The chatter outside? This is the sound of a tenement building, thrumming with the energy of so many people living in close quarters, their lives literally bouncing off one another. Welcome back to How to Be American. I'm Brendan Murphy. Throughout our history, music and sound have helped transform and define our American society. I'm not just talking about the Star Spangled Banner and God Bless America. I'm talking about the rush of traffic and Latin music in Los Angeles, of quips in Polish and the splashing of waves on Lake Erie in Cleveland, and the roar of the subway and Yiddish phrases in New York City. I'm talking about our shared American soundscapes. While it's clear that these soundscapes are part of our identity, today we're going to explore a deeper question. How have these sounds shaped our lives, our communities, and our culture? Recently, the Tenement Museum partnered with the New York Philharmonic to bring a riveting new multimedia musical performance to one of our historic tenement buildings, 97 Orchard Street. Fire in My Mouth, created by the renowned contemporary composer Julia Wolfe, tells the story of garment workers in the early 20th century and the tragic Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire that killed 146 of them. It was one of the country's deadliest industrial disasters. For one night, musicians played a version of this incredibly haunting music in our tenement apartments. Throughout this episode, you're going to hear excerpts from the Philharmonic's performance, which paint sonic pictures of various elements of the immigration experience. We'll look at this idea of soundscapes through two different lenses. The first, through the historical perspective of Bessie Rogarshevsky, a teenage garment factory worker in 1911. Then, through the eyes of Julia Wolf herself, the artist behind Fire in My Mouth. Let's call it a podcast in two movements. To learn about the soundscapes of Bessie Rogarshevsky's life and how they influenced her American identity, I sat down with my friend and colleague Sarah Tomaszewski. Sarah is a musicologist as well as a member of the Tenement Museum's education department. We started with the basics. Define for us musicology. So musicology is essentially music history. And musicologists will write program notes and textbooks and teach music history courses. We study the world through the lens of music. So by looking to other social sciences, we're able to gain a better understanding of the historical moment in which a song appeared or a piece was composed. But we can also look at broader ideas too, like what's going on politically or what's going on um, in other historical moments by better understanding the music from that time period. Can you tell me a little bit about what interests you about that idea of the American soundscape? It's really complicated. I mean, so much of what would be considered American music really comes from the influence of a lot of different factors. Um, for example, there's the huge wave of German immigration immigrant who comes to the United States in the mid-19th century. And a lot of those immigrants were professional instrumentalists and singers and conductors and teachers and instrument builders. And when they arrive in the United States, they're continuing to make that music. And essentially they become some of the first players in the New York Philharmonic, for example. They establish music schools and build instrument factories. And a lot of that influence is part of why we're still listening to Beethoven today when we go to orchestra concerts. Uh, the Irish immigrants who arrived during that period too, they're bringing a lot of their music with them. And fiddle music was widely popular across the United States, and a lot of that stems from Irish melodies. And eventually that's going to lay the groundwork for bluegrass and country music. Um, you also see the influences of um, enslaved Africans who bring a lot of their rhythms and music making, which will eventually become blues and jazz and lead into rock and roll. 
Um, you also see the influence of Eastern European Jewish immigrants who also bring a very rich music making tradition. And they are essentially through vaudeville and theater. They also become very much a part of Tin Pan Alley and popular music making in the early 20th century. And so all of these factors come together to create a lot of the music that we're listening to today, particularly um, popular music. As Sarah explained, this collision also resulted in new musical cultures being formed. During the early 20th century, the American soundscape was reborn and popularized in New York City. No other city on earth would have sounded quite like New York, and Bessie Rogarshevsky was in the center of it all. Bessie immigrated to the United States with her parents and three siblings from Telsch, Lithuania. The family arrived in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in 1901. Bessie, the second oldest, was just seven years old. Over the next few years, the Rogarshevsky family welcomed two additional boys, making them a family of eight. Sometime between 1907 and 1910, the family moved into 97 Orchard Street. Bessie spent her teenage years there, surrounded by the sounds of her neighbors, 22 families in a narrow five-story building. If you imagine yourself walking up that kind of dark, dim interior staircase, what kinds of sounds do you imagine you'd be hearing? Oh, so many things. I think the rhythm of daily life, for sure. Um, you're going to hear footsteps on the hardwood floors, uh, doors slamming, babies crying. Um, and all of those sounds would have easily resonated through the building. It's made of pine wood floors and plaster and lath construction, so sound travels pretty readily. Um, in addition, as you know, you're wandering through that space, you would also hear the rattling of pots and pans or a cast iron coal burning stove door opening and closing as someone's making dinner or lunch. Um, you would have also probably heard arguing and heated conversations, maybe children playing on the landings outside of their apartments, uh, you know, babies crying and mothers trying to comfort them, maybe through song or maybe another mother that's just sending her kids out to play because they're, you know, there's so many in their tiny apartment. Um, so I think all of these, like the rhythm of daily life would create a building that could be, you know, raucous in the middle of the day or maybe even peaceful for a moment in the middle of the night. The apartment was awfully crowded with eight people in it. You can imagine a teenager like Bessie wanting to get outside and explore the neighborhood with her friends or, as she might have put it, her crowd. I asked Sarah to tell me a bit more about what the streets of the Jewish Lower East Side might have sounded like in the early 20th century. We know that the neighborhood was densely populated during that period. Um, we know that there was an estimate like more than 2,000 pushcarts lined the streets every single day. And also we often think about it as being you know, a Jewish neighborhood, which it was, but you also have people coming from different parts of Eastern Europe but you're also hearing English, maybe broken English, and you're hearing um, Ladino, which was a language spoken by Sephardic Jews who were also living in the neighborhood at the time. Maybe you're hearing Polish or Lithuanian. In addition, you would have heard the rumble of the elevated train a few blocks away going by. Um, you would have also heard the call of pushcart vendors on the street selling their wares, um, organ grinders entertaining children. Uh, I think the soundscape was very vibrant, very lively. In addition, you've got, during this period, the popular music industry is really taking off and recorded sound is becoming more and more available and accessible to people who are living in the neighborhood. So one of the ways that Tin Pan Alley or the popular music industry at the time is trying to sell music is by employing song pluggers to be on the streets and try to sell this music. So you might be walking somewhere and you'll hear a song plugger singing the latest hit with little chorus cards that they're passing out to the collecting crowd trying to invite them to sing as well. Come on, sing along with me. You'll never get your day's work done. 
So you might hear that kind of music making. You might also see um, street musicians outside of the Yiddish theater also singing some of those songs too. Can you help us understand Tin Pan Alley a little bit more? You mentioned it as the popular music industry. Sure. So Tin Pan Alley was an actual place. It's in Manhattan. It was on West 28th Street between Broadway and 6th. And a lot of the popular music publishers had offices along that stretch of West 28th Street. And essentially at the turn of the century, as pianos also become more accessible um, and we are able to print music more accessibly and also more cheaply, they're trying to sell this sheet music and it's a very formulaic way of producing music. So typically these are verse and refrain songs that are easy to remember and that are singable and playable on a piano. But I can't imagine that people in the Lower East Side would have had space to have a piano. I know you wouldn't think so. It's crazy, right? Um, but there are accounts of people having pianos in their in their tenement buildings. Um, there are primary sources describing the day that the piano gets delivered, and essentially they're using pulleys to lift these pianos through the front of the building and then bring them in the front windows and install them in their parlors. Um, and to have a piano was really a signifier that you know, in some ways that you you were American because you had this piano in your home, and a lot of the families might pay. Um, to get lessons for one of their children and have the other children around and kind of watching this lesson so they could kind of get some information too. Um, so yeah, piano, music making on the street. Bessie Rogarshevsky didn't just spend her days on Orchard Street. She was a wage earner too. The 1910 census shows us that Bessie worked in a factory that made women's clothing as a sewing machine operator. Although the Lower East Side was the center of the garment industry for many years, by 1910, most of the large electrified factories were located outside of the neighborhood. We don't know which factory Bessie worked in, but we know it was not the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Six days a week, Bessie and thousands of young women like her would wake up, put on their favorite hat, and head off to work. Perhaps Bessie took the local elevated train that ran along Allen Street, the next block over from Orchard Street. I can imagine her boarding the train and watching a sea of brick tenement buildings fly by below her. This might have been the only time of day she had to herself, surrounded by a crowd of people, but also lost in her thoughts. What would a teenager like Bessie be thinking about? She's relatively young, and then she's working in a garment factory. And within that space, she's granted a certain amount of independence each day to leave the family's apartment and go to work. And so her commute to work is going to be filled with lots of things. And maybe she's hearing some of those song pluggers on her commute. Maybe if she just, if she takes the train or maybe, you know, she's walking the neighborhood and she hears them on the corners. And then once she gets into the factory itself, um, I wonder how much she's trying to fit in with the culture of the factory. These new factories, like the one Bessie worked in, had high ceilings and big windows to let in more air and light. Many of them are now insanely pricey loft apartments. A hundred years ago those same buildings would have hummed with the sounds of garment work. Only certain jobs were available to women, and these were the jobs that paid less than those available to men. Workers often had to pay for their own supplies, were fined for broken sewing needles, or even had to rent their own chair. In spite of these obstacles, women like Bessie forged new identities at these factories. They refused to let the sound of the sewing machines drown them out. Can you talk to us a little bit about the sounds that we might hear within a factory, aside from the whirl of those sewing machines? Yeah. 
I think the world of sewing machines for sure. And I, I can only imagine the clatter of, of all of those machines together. In addition, I think you're hearing these Tin Pan Alley songs, but you might also hear folk songs, uh, women singing songs in Italian, for example, or in Yiddish. We also have primary source accounts of women describing that, um, singing love songs, for example, uh, from Eastern Europe. And you're hearing a song that maybe you recognize that you haven't maybe heard in a while since you arrived in America. And so maybe it's that song that takes you back. And again, it's signaling to the community a little bit about who you are and where you came from. Is it possible that Bessie would have been singing in the factory? It is. Um, we know that in some instances, the girls weren't allowed to talk to each other um, and they might be fined for doing so. And there's this wonderful primary source quote where this woman is recalling her time in the in the sweatshop and she describes how one girl um, in the line would start humming and the others would join in gradually until the foreman could finally hear it. And then he would try to discover who it was that was singing. And once he figured out who it was, he would deduct three hours of pay from her, from her paycheck. Um, and the woman goes on to describe how hard it was to be quiet for those full 11 hours while she was at work as a teenager within, within the factory space. Can you talk more about how music created kind of a collective or created a community inside of those factories? Yeah. I mean, we also know that for a lot of these factory girls, they felt devalued. They considered the clothes that they were making to be more valuable than they were themselves as, as the workers. And we know that they're doing things like reading romance novels during their lunch break. And some are going out on the streets and even dancing during their lunch breaks. Um, and within the factory floor, I think music is, is, a way to bring the community together in a variety of ways. And number one, if you're not allowed to sing, it's it's a kind of protest really, if you decide you're gonna start humming or singing these songs. In addition, if you know the words to the song and you can join in, well, then you're part of that community too. And even if you don't know the words, we also have evidence of women describing how certain songs would signal what time it was in the workday. So even if you haven't learned the words yet, but you hear the melody that you recognize, you know that the workday might almost be over. So you're also able to participate just simply through understanding. And so music is creating these boundaries, these almost framing these communities within these spaces for these girls in which they might feel a sense of belonging. Do you know any of those songs that were signaling songs? We have a primary source quote um, from a girl saying that there was a song called The Fatal Wedding uh, that one of her coworkers started to sing, and it signified that it was a, towards the end of the workday for the girls that were there. Um, doing a little research, The Fatal Wedding was one of an early Tin Pan Alley song. It came out in the 1890s, um, written by an African-American songwriter whose name was Gussie L. Davis. And so this song, it's interesting, comes out in the 1890s. It's one of the very early melodramatic tearjerker songs. And the wedding bells were ringing while the bride and groom were there Marching up the aisle together while the organ pealed What about that collision of sound made these factories American spaces? Hmm. I think, again, going back to what we were saying at the very beginning, it's this idea that it's it's all of these sounds, it's the pluralism that is our American soundscape, all of these different sounds from all these disparate places coming together to create this, this shared community through um, shared experience, really, that's bringing these factory workers together. If, if most of them are, are immigrants themselves, I think there's this understanding of, of missing home or feeling like maybe you don't quite belong um, in this new place and you're forming this new community with the people you see every day. How might being a participant in this factory and in this community of women shape Bessie's American identity? 
I think it's certainly shaping her worldview because Bessie's experience, because she is granted that independence, is going to be different from that of, say, her mom, who we know her mom doesn't learn English. She's a Yiddish speaker her entire life. And her mother, like many tenement housewives, um, her primary space is, is at home and within the context of that neighborhood. So for Bessie Rogoshevsky to go out and work every day, she's going to just be inundated with all of these new things that she's seeing and experiencing. She's going to meet women from different neighborhoods, from different parts of the world. And as they get to know each other and share their stories, it might change the way that she's perceiving different communities. Maybe she comes becomes friends with some of these women. Maybe, um, you know, they become part of her crowd as she goes, you know, to the push carts in the evenings or goes to the movie theater. Right. Um, and starts kind of exploring her own independence. Sarah, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for sitting and talking with me. My pleasure, Brandon. These soundscapes were integral in shaping the various facets of Bessie's American identity. The sounds she heard in her home reinforced her identity as a daughter and a Jewish person, while the sounds she heard in the street shaped her as a teenager consuming pop culture. And the factory opened up her eyes and ears to the diversity of New York and the power of community. After exploring Bessie's story with Sarah, I wanted to learn how Julia Wolf turned this incredible slice of history into fire in my mouth a piece performed by orchestra and vocalists, which is called an oratorio. To make it contemporary, she also added multimedia elements like archival photos and video. How exactly did Julia use music and sound to recreate and shine new light on this history? To recap, Sarah is a musicologist. I am not. When we met with Julia Wolf, Sarah thankfully did the talking. I spoke to Julia in her Manhattan apartment and asked her about her process and what inspired her to create the piece. Fun fact, Julia lives in a renovated caviar factory. I am Julia Wolf, and I'm a composer living here in New York City. And we're talking today about your most recent work, Fire in My Mouth, um, which the New York Philharmonic premiered in January. And I'm wondering, for those um, who didn't have the opportunity to hear the piece, could you just give us an overview, like the movements, instrumentation? Yeah, it's uh, it's a hard thing to describe in a way because there's so many moving parts um, and, and so many visual elements. The first movement is immigration. The second movement is factory. The third movement is protest. Very straight ahead titles. And the fourth movement is fire. And the forces for the piece are full orchestra. In this case, it was the incredible New York Philharmonic. There were so many things that struck me about this performance. And one of the things was this perpetual energy and the sense of urgency that existed in all four of the movements. I think a lot about what you just said, a lot about energy and tension and what builds tension. And it, it's it's hard to put your finger on what builds tension, but, um, but I guess it's a certain kind of focus and rhythmic drive that I think a lot about and, and is in a lot of my music. I mean, often people will describe it as relentless or um, driven or uh, hard driving or whatever. So it's interesting that it's transforming even into this piece. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too, because it took on different forms throughout the piece. Like at first it was the water and it was this kind of 
I felt as the the girls were leaving and immigrating and coming to the to the United States. Then later, it's it's the movement of the machines in the factory. It's the movement of the protest. It's the movement ultimately of the fire and just this constant build. Um, and each thing kind of surges and builds into the next. Well, yeah, um, motion is really important because when you think about it, these women did not sit still. They were not women of of, of luxury, you know. So they're not like sitting on a cruise ship. They're actually on this huge boat in third class. It's noisy, it's lively, um, and they're coming to God knows what. They just don't know what they're coming to. So this kind of energy is, um, you can't really fall asleep at the wheel. You're coming to a place you don't know the language. And um, so all of these issues, I think, find their way into the into the fabric of the music. Yeah. And I think to your point, so the other thing I was really interested in was this idea of soundscape. And it's something that we've been talking a lot about at the museum recently, just how different sounds can help to define, tell us sort of the neighborhood that we're in, for example, or our own songs and music that's part of our own experience as just a person. And so you, I felt in this composition are evoking these, these spaces. And one of the most effective was the factory floor. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about, about, first of all, what you were trying to pull into that sound. The way I got to that place of factory, first of all, what I was doing was trying to emulate the sound of what that factory floor could have sounded like. Um, as far as I know, there's no actual sound recording, but there are descriptions. And people would say, you'd enter the factory floor and there'd be the roar of these machines. I mean, you're talking about these long tables, hundreds of sewing machines. Uh, it must have been an incredible sound. And, you know, I don't think they really thought so much about quiet machine back then, you know, now people go, well, what's the quietest air conditioner I can buy? Or what's the quietest, you know, um, dishwasher I can buy? Well, they just that's just the sound they made. Fire in My Mouth is a musical piece, but Julia didn't simply want to recreate the sounds of the factory. Instead, she wanted to reinvent them. Julia walked me through the process, starting with the violins. Right, your left hand is holding the instrument and that's on the neck of the violin and you're finding the notes. But if you don't, press down and you just rest your fingers on the strings, you mute the sound. So you get a non-pitch. So you might get more like a or sound. Um, and the right hand has the bow. And if the bow presses really, really hard, while well, the left hand's muting and the bow presses really, really hard on the strings, can be on any of the strings, you can get this series of clicks or pops. So it'd be like And when you string them all together, you get and it's, 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 I was like, that's it. That, that's a perfect sound. It really amazing. Um, it sounds pretty cool with one string playing it, especially if you're right up close to it. Um, the sound of a whole group of people doing that is really amazing uh, and, and it's such a great sound. But if I brought in a big group, like if I brought in all the first violins going, um, all the second violins and the violas, cellos, so down to the basses, you have this spatial sweep across the strings. And it just—it was just really fun to hear that. I've never written that before. But moving on to another instrument, um, the percussion. This is a sound I've worked with before with my own group with um, the Bang in a Can All Stars. Um, so the percussionist at Bang in a Can is David Kossin, and we—I've several times I've written for him to roll on the rim of a drum. So often you'll roll on the on the drum head, you yeah, know, yeah. which is also a beautiful sound. But if you roll on the rim, you get. And this really, I think that's actually the closest to the sewing machines is the, is the rim rolls on the, on the drums. So um, just having all four of them do that together, first they kind of alternate rolling on the rims and then they kind of do these big group rolls on the rims. And um, 
that was a really beautiful sound. And then um, all the brass players are actually blowing air through their instruments. And that's a sound I've heard before, but um, there's a way that they can blow through their instrument and just get the sound that's like, And we did that in these kind of regular intervals so that it's, again, some kind of machine. I don't, I don't know what machine. Is it the steam iron that they ironed the clothing with? I don't know. But it's, it's not, in the way this section is somewhat literal and, and also fantastic at the same time, like not, not completely literal. So building this whole world of um, these uh, tacks and, and sounds that could be ima imaginary factory sounds was really an incredible process. During our discussion of the instruments Julia used, she mentioned percussion. She told me that anything can be a percussion instrument as long as you can bang it on something. With this spirit in mind, Julia used non-traditional instruments to help recreate the sounds of the factory. One of those non-traditional instruments was a pair of really big scissors. And um, so some of those are simulated, but then there are these very literal sounds, and one of them is the scissors. And I, that's in the score, so that's not a theatrical thing we added. It's actually written out in time in the score. And I knew I was going to have to figure out where am I getting the scissors from and what do they sound like. So I did do a little um, scissor hunt and went to two stores in the garment district. And so there it was. Um, we went to the store and this wonderful man named Sid spent hours with us. He very patiently brought out all these different scissors and it was just a great experience. And he was laughing because I said, look, I don't really care how they cut. They just have to sound good. These are the 12 inch. I, I, have, I bought both the 12 inch and the 10 inch and then as well as a few other smaller scissors. But the 12 inch beat everything in terms of what they look like and what they sound like. So these are the 12 inch. For Julia, this piece wasn't only about the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire. It was about the women who were affected by it. It was about their lives before, their lives after, and what they might have experienced during the fire itself. Julia made sure that her audience didn't think of these women as anonymous victims. She wove the names of the women who worked in the factory and the music they may have heard during their workday into the piece. She used their American identities as musical notes. Thinking about the factory floor, so there's the first, you know, we've got the literal idea of trying to evoke the sound of the sewing machines, but then you have all of these women who are bringing their own stories to this space. And it was such a beautiful moment, too, when you're hearing the, the, the Yiddish and the Italian songs. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I was trying to figure out how to, to bring that information into the piece because the two primary groups, of course, in the Triangle Factory were uh, Eastern European and Russian Jews and Southern Italian, but just having the names in. So in the names, you can hear the ethnicities, you can hear the Eastern European names, the Italian names, and they're all very colorful and multisyllabic. And so I um, I really wanted to, in this movement factory, I really wanted to represent those two cultures. And so I found this old Yiddish song that is about sewing. And then that's a very mournful tune that kind of floats above this factory sound. And then in comes this very crazy, feisty kind of tarantella. It's a southern, from the very most southern part of Italy. And it's just um, a crazy kind of dance form. And it was mostly, uh, I think, 
thought to ward off like the poison of a spider bite. But um, with the text is more about love and um, kind of illicit love or kind of sneaking off to have love, whatever. But um, these two together were just really fun to make a counterpoint between the two because one is this floating kind of mournful cry and the other one is this wild, hysterical kind of song. So all that is happening with the factory. And I would read conflicting things. I mean, some factories, it sounded like there was a lot of singing and other places they didn't allow singing. They didn't want anything. You guys quiet down there. Um, it seemed like there was some singing in the Triangle Factory because um, there was an account of the song that was sung before the fire broke out. So I, I'm guessing there was some singing, um, but who knows how much and whether it was hushed or, or not. Going back to what you were saying about um, feeling like an outsider and how to become feel as though you're part of a different of a community here in the United States. And a lot of times popular culture was was kind of that route in, whether it's the clothes that you're wearing that are, you know, essentially trendy and and cool, or your interpretation of the way that you're speaking, or romance novels or Tin Pan Alley songs. And, yes, exactly. and all of those things played out on the factory floor as well as these women were creating a community there. Um, and often music is an expression of that too. Yeah. And in when you were scoring that protest section, I think during the part where it's like, I want to be American, it was, that was sung in unison, right? Was it disparate um, voices? It is, it's, it's um, uh, sometimes harmonized, but it's in unison rhythm. So mm -hmm. that you get okay. this kind of force coming at you like, I want to. Yeah. And um, um, after a while, you don't even, it's a, you don't even need to hear the I want to, but the verb is really important, I want to laugh like an American, I want to. So some some of the things are very straightforward um, and positive. I want, to, I want to talk like, look like, um, dream like, but then they get a little darker, cry like, um, bleed like, burn like. So there's a gradual kind of getting into all kinds of questions about the problems you have here in this country or we've had over, you know, the history of this country um, that aren't so pretty. And mm -hmm. um, although for the most part, I think it was an incredible relief for everyone to come to this country in, in this context. Bessie Rogarshevsky lived a life that would have felt very familiar to the young women who died in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Many of them were her age, her ethnicity, her neighbors. She, too, might have wondered how to laugh like an American. The soundscape of the Lower East Side, of Bessie's home, shifted through its grief. On March 27, 1911, just two days after the fire, a funeral procession journeyed down Orchard Street. The scene was described in the Evening World newspaper. As the hearse was passing the synagogue at number 82 Orchard Street, it was halted for a moment by congestion at the crossing. A venerable man with a long white beard and the impressive carriage of a rabbi pushed his way out of the crowd and mounted the synagogue steps. In a great, vibrant voice, he recited the prayer for the dead in Yiddish. Thousands of men and women stood silent with bowed heads until he finished. Bessie and her family lived at 97 Orchard, just about a half a block north of this scene. Despite not working at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, Bessie would have been there as a witness to both the anguish and the silence that followed. In my conversation with Julia, she spoke about how it was especially difficult to compose the fire movement. To make this piece true to the personal stories, 
but not to get lost in the tragedy. But there was one description we had with the bodies coming down, the, the sound the bodies made on the ground, like thud, dead, thud, dead. That's the way the, the article described them. And I thought, oh, that's, I'll, I'll put that in the piece. And I just couldn't put it, I just couldn't put it in the piece. It was too, it was too much, you know? And so I just made it in a way that that most intense part of the fire movement is, is just music. Um, it's a, a, the roar of the orchestra and just a simple text. I see them falling. So you know that people are coming out, jumping, jumping from the windows. But, um, but I didn't want to, uh, I don't know. Can't get, I didn't want to melodram- make it melodramatic, and I didn't want to um, somehow make it less than it was. So it took me the longest to write that last movement. Um, well, I mean, one thing I should say also is that a lot of the text is from accounts or oral history. So in Fire, well, actually in several of the movements, um, I'm using um, people's direct words. So in fire, some of the description is actually from the trial. So there was a trial following the fire and um, the description of, um, I see the the trail of her dress or the ends of her hair begin to burn. And um, so there's the beginning of, oh my gosh, what's happening here? There's a, this, this fire is igniting. And, um, and those are just words that someone said actually. Um, and then some snippets from speeches from Rose Schneiderman's speech. Um, that's a whole other subject, just capturing the the fierceness and vitality of these women leaders um, is probably in a way that one of the most central parts of the piece. I, again, as an audience member, I never, I felt like it was, it was giving voice um, to all of these stories and they weren't made into victims in the sense like that wasn't the focus. Like, yeah, this, this terrible thing happened, but also like, this is about empowerment too. Yeah, and that, was, that was very important to me. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because when I first was talking to people about the subject, okay, this is the subject of the piece and trying to start to build the piece, people say, oh, we write the piece about the Triangle Fire. And I say, well, no, it's that's part of the piece. <laughs> that's going to definitely be in the piece, but it's about these women and what they did because huge change came after the fire, but huge effort happened before the fire. So in 1909, there was the uprising of 20,000 and all these people, largely, mostly women, um, hit the streets and were out protesting because of the conditions. And and some change came after that, um, not at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, but at, at other in other factories. And um, and so all of that protest and then this tragedy, which unfortunately is the way people wake up, but it's not until that point that people wake up and feel the pain and then... Big change. So all these incredible changes came about. Almost every fire code we have in place today is from, is from that moment. And it's funny because having done a renovation where I live in an old loft, um, you know, you kind of like oh, roll your eyes. Oh my gosh, you have to think about that exit or why does the window have to be there? What, you know, what's, what are all these things that you have to think about? And then all of a sudden doing this piece, I was like, well, of course you need two exits. <laughs> of course you need that fire escape and it has to work. You know, um, those fire escapes at the Triangle Fire didn't work. They, they, they burned and melted and they weren't strong enough. And so uh, all of this change came about because of these incredibly, you know, gutsy women. And um, I definitely highlighted, well, in particular, Clara Lemnick, the, the title of the piece is from a line that she said. Um, it was, uh, someone had interviewed her years later and um, asked her about her youth. And she said, ah, then I had fire in my mouth. I don't think she even necessarily 
consciously thought about the fire, but she meant I was, you know, outspoken. And um, and then this beautiful, beautiful, painful speech of Rose Schneiderman after this tragedy had happened. Um, I would be a traitor to those poor burned bodies if I were to speak of good fellowship. I have tried you, good people of the public, and I have found you wanting. And this was such an intense line. I, I just found it so poignant because, you know, yes, there were bad factory owners and there were negligent people, but really it's kind of a community, uh, communal guilt. And that's what she was saying. I've tried you, good people of the public, because there are a lot of layers. There's government, there's people, anybody voting or whatever, paying attention. I mean, you were kind of all... Collect. I think everyone felt collectively responsible. I mean, angry too at the lack of um, governance, but um, but also collective kind of guilt that how could we not have paid attention to these young women? And um, so that was uh, interesting just to see, um, yeah. As Julia imagined this national tragedy, she didn't simply focus on what happened. She put the sounds of hope, work and suffering into the music. She imagined the soundscape of the lives of the workers who died on March 25, 1911, and of those that survived. She thought about the roar of the speeches given in their community, and the scratches of pencil from journalists writing hundreds of miles away, and from the historians writing a century later. She didn't limit herself to a single moment. She made all of the sounds we make, and the things we do, relevant to larger moments in our collective history. Learning more about Bessie Rogarshevsky and the women of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory made me realize just how much sounds connect us. We make them and we absorb them. Sounds broadcast who we are and frame and shape our communities. The people who hear our sounds are part of that community. And that means your community might be far broader than you initially thought. We don't even have to love all the sounds that we hear. They still connect us to a moment in our lives. There's no opting out of this collaboration. When I think about New York and my neighborhood in Brooklyn, I can imagine how the sounds I hear during my day could be written down and collected as part of a history of our city. On my morning subway ride, I hear English, Russian, and Bengali. I hear the crinkle of newspapers and the sounds of kids laughing with their friends on their way to school. When I leave the subway near the Tenement Museum, I hear a man playing a traditional Chinese string instrument. Sometimes he plays the Star Spangled Banner. I hear the sound of different cultures clashing and combining over the steady beat of eight and a half million people moving through the streets. These soundscapes are not the same across the country. In Kansas, the sound of the wind blowing through the fields or the mooing of cows is as significant as the honk of cab horns in Manhattan, the sound of waves crashing and club music in Miami, the silence of a New Mexico desert. Songs and sounds are part of who we are, where we've been, and where we're going. Without question, immigrant communities have always been participants in the American soundscape. Ours is one of many languages, songs, and experiences. Thanks for listening to How to Be American. How to Be American is a podcast created by the Tenement Museum. This episode was produced by Max Savage-Levinson. Craig Keppen is our editor and composer. Special thanks to Sarah Tomaszewski, Julia Wolf, Ava Robinson, the New York Philharmonic, and Pineapple Street Media in Brooklyn, New York. If you like this episode of How to Be American, you can subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To explore more stories like the ones in this episode, visit tenement.org. 
Consider donating or becoming a member to support us in telling stories that illustrate what it means to be American. Like so many other Americans, we're taking a short spring break. Look for our next trailer in two weeks and a new full episode of How to Be American on May 8th. I'm Brendan Murphy. Thanks for listening.